Welcome to C-Suite Radio. Holy heartbeat! Welcome to another episode of the Open Mic Podcast. Excellent! With your host, Brad Allen. Well, isn't that extra special? Recorded live at Bay Area Studios. Join Brett each week as he interviews celebrities, influencers, authors, high-level entrepreneurs, and much more. At the open mic, no topic is off limits. Giddy up. And you never know who may stop by. Now, here's your host, Brett Allen. What's up, everybody? Welcome into another edition of the Open Mic Podcast. Brett Allen here. Fantastic episode with you today. Jeffrey Weissman is on the line. He is George McFly from Back to the Future 2 and 3, but he has done other films as well. He is an industry veteran. He's been in this business for over 30 plus years at least. And we are going to talk Back to the Future and many other topics. I'm excited for you to check out this conversation. Jeffrey, welcome into the podcast. It's great to have you on the show today. It's great to be here. Well, I'm excited to chat with you. I've been looking forward to this all week since you agreed to it. And if I understand correctly, you're from the Bay Area, Petaluma. Is that correct? Am I, am I understanding that correctly, my friend? Yeah, I live up in uh, southern Sonoma County, uh, even though I was raised in Los Angeles and I uh, had a, a 20-year career in Hollywood down there. I just was getting pretty crazy with the traffic and overcrowding. And uh, luckily, my wife and I both found work that brought us up back up to the Bay Area, which I fell in love with when I moved up here originally in 78 to uh up my sights to go to the American Conservatory Theater. Wow, so we're pretty close and probably within about 30, 40 minutes each other. That's great. I Unfortunately, if we weren't on lockdown, I, I would if I had known that you were that close, I would have been like, this would be fun to do in person. But hey, we're kind of still in lockdown. Speaking of, how has that been treating you? I've been following you on social media and you've been posting a lot of things. Are you ready for this to be over? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's I'm a I'm a very social person. I I love people. I I miss all my friends and family. That you know I, I make trips regularly to visit cousins and my my kids. And yeah, it's 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 very difficult. Uh, at, and work wise, we've lost probably getting over fifteen thousand dollars worth of work here, and, and that really hurts. Yeah, in fact, I should be today flying back from Italy. Where, oh wow. Uh, Peter Weller, Peter Weller of Robocop fame and I were headlining a small Comic-Con uh, it's called Starcon up there in the north of Italy, which was hit so hard. So I, I did a live remote, in fact, on Sunday uh, to them. And then uh, the week before, I was to premiere my one-man uh, Mark Twain show at the Calaveras County Fair and Jumping Frog Jubilee. Um, and, you know, at, uh, right there at Angel's Camp near Jackass Hill, where he was in 1865. And so it was a uh, back-to-back uh, big gigs that both got canceled due, due to the pandemic. Uh, but ironically, I'm staying busy. Um, uh, various table reads for some feature films and some TV pilots. And then I'm working with some of the actors gang, old friends of mine who uh we're uh, updating and doing a pandemic version of Waiting for Godot called Zooming for Godot or Zooming for COVID, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. Zooming to uh, Zooming to go. I don't know. Um, and then uh, and then yesterday, just yesterday, I don't know if you caught this off my social network. I, I, I actually played Doc Brown in a uh, Shakespearean version of Back to the Future um, that was Zoomed with a wonderful theater company uh, out of England. So our, our dress rehearsal was at six o'clock in the morning, <laughs> our time. 
it was the afternoon for them, and then we went on uh, midday yesterday. And so you can find that online if anyone wants to uh, check it out. I did. That was fantastic. And now that we're on the topic, let's just cover that. That was so fun to watch you do that and to play that iconic character. And really, the whole series is just purely... I mean, I'm 45. I grew up with those movies, and, and I watched them all in real time. And in fact, it's funny that we're talking about this. My son is about to turn six, and I had him watch the first two films this past weekend when he was with me. And he absolutely loves him and loves you, loves the film. He was in a five-year-old's mind trying to understand how everything was happening. And uh, great films. Let's I talk still don't understand it all. It's in my 60-year-old mind. <laughs> <laughs> how so? That's an interesting comment. How, is it just is it mind-boggling to you that such a film would be so popular and successful? I mean, did you have any kind of idea when you came on to those films? that they would just be oh, as popular sure. as they were? Oh, yeah. I, I was a huge fan of the first film. I, I'd worked with uh, Crispin Glover on a film before he got the first film, and seeing him in, in the company of Michael J. Fox and Chris Lloyd was really thrilling, and, and everyone was hitting their notes, and their timing was so beautiful. Um, and everyone loves time travel movies, and it just took it to a, a wonderful new place with the, its... It's comedy, and and yet uh, there was a real great camaraderie there between Doc and Marty. That was just uh, chemi- uh, the chemistry was fantastic. So it uh, though in being a part of part two, coming into that family, I knew that it was the biggest grossing film of 1985. And already in Variety and Hollywood Reporter, they were coining the sequels as. Uh, back to the bank instead of back to the future because so much money the studio had thrown so much money at all the principals you know i think michael was getting i don't know 12 million and chris lloyd six million or whatever you know everyone was getting a lot of money to reprise their role and uh and i was never really told up front that i was auditioning to be george i was uh only told that i was up for being his stand-in photo double so i figured they needed george and needed George in various places at the same time, like they needed Michael in various places at the same time. That's why they used Kevin Holloway, who was Michael's photo double, really is quite a ringer for him. And I came through that same agent that Kevin came through. And when uh, late in the game, when I had already been uh, screen tested for makeup effects uh, for young George and uh, had gone through all the... uh, special effects fittings for the body cast and such for my spinning and so on and so forth. Uh, I was told actually by my makeup artist, Ken Chase actually said, you know, Crispin's out. I was like, what? And I couldn't fathom how they were going to make the film without him. In fact, it, it really boggled my mind. So I, I figured because Crispin was coming off various really great roles, like in uh, River's Edge and the Doors movie and various other films, that he was a part of a film that he couldn't get out of the scheduling of. It just wasn't going to work out. And, and so to be told in the 11th hour that I was going to be taking over the role, I, I was, huh? I kind of in a tailspin and didn't really get in, uh, invited to 
table readings or script readings or anything. I was just sort of thrown into the deep end with uh, first uh, reshooting, recreating the Enchantment Under the Sea dance and the fight with Biff out in the Hill Valley High School parking lot, um, which was easy enough. At least we had a template of the first film to, you know, we had to recreate all those scenes and we could go back to video playback and see what we needed to do. And Tom was lovely to work with and our stunt coordinator was great. And, you know, everyone was really cool, although it was still very uncomfortable. You know, uh, here was a very tight cast who I know Michael was very close to Crispin and and Leah was very close close to Crispin as well as Tom. And they saw me in the young age makeup and they were like, what the heck is going on here? And, And I didn't, I wasn't even informed by the producers that they didn't have his permission to make me up to look like he does. And so naturally when he sued, I wasn't surprised. Uh, and it was really unfortunate that, you know, they, they didn't come to an agreement beforehand. So it was, it was very icky in that, that respect. It was also icky that they kept me from promoting myself and actually pulled the plug on various events that I had been a part of with the intent to promote the film. So so it was a mixed blessing for me, except the, the big blessing is that I'm a part of these uh, trilogies, this trilogy that's one of the top 10 trilogies of all time now. Well, it's one of those movies that came out during that time frame, and there were a lot were just great movies, but they just don't really hold up to these films that you were a part of. You know, I think there was Teen Wolf, which was a good movie, another Michael J. Fox film, and they've kind of rebooted that show multiple times, but they really haven't messed with Back to the Future. I know you've done things and you've, you know, this table read that you did just recently, and there's conferences and Comic-Con type things that have been created around this whole universe. Now, you mentioned something about not getting told beforehand until you're like in the makeup chair. Do you know, and and if this is not really meant to be a tough question, but I'm just kind of curious because it kind of came up organically. Do you think that there was maybe a reason why that it didn't get mentioned to you or they just were kind of waiting to see what happened? I'm very curious about that. If you wouldn't mind explaining that a little bit more, yeah, it's oh, very intriguing. Sure. And we sort of have two questions wide open here. You were getting to why I thought uh, new generations were loving the films like your five-year-old. First of all, the second film is kind of dark. I was like, wow, your five, six-year-old watching pretty dark stuff there, but I'm glad he enjoyed it and it is complicated i still had a hard time following it you know on the big screen when it came out and and a few other viewings i was like okay this is i get it now um but during production things were going on people were saying things to me that made me realize that uh crispin caused apparently a great deal of trouble on the first set by insisting that uh, paintings that he made with leah be part of the set or that uh, he'd disappear or he'd flip out when someone trimmed his hair when he didn't give them permission to trim his hair, you know, just little things like this that the producers didn't respect. I, I, I can understand, you know, Crispin, I know is eccentric, uh, often neurotic and dark and has his artistic uh, approach or process. And I think he didn't fit into the mold that uh, professional Hollywood shoots expect. You know, there's a certain uh, protocol on set for going through uh, assistant directors to directors to producers to, you know, you don't necessarily do things without really collaborating or being a team player. If you're going to throw a fit, generally you're in charge of the production. You know, your name is so big, you'll hear of big stars that will throw their weight around and take over directing a piece or, uh, you know, change a script because they want it a certain way and they have that clout. And I think Crispin thought he had that kind of clout. That's why I believe, you know, they, I think, offered him 100000 to come back to reprise his role and he wanted a million. Uh, 
I know this because during production, Spielberg came up to me while I was made up as old George and said, so Crispin, I see you got your million dollars after all. And I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, but it's at the same time sad. Sure. You know, it was like, here I am. I'm only getting a, a handful of thousands, whereas I'm saving them possibly 975,000. You know, it's like, fuck. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I can't. No, you're fine. Hey, Dave, don't worry about it, my friend. Continue on. This is a great story. You're, you're, you are scratching an itch for me that has been there for a a long time. So please continue, my friend. You're okay. Well, I, I look at the uh, the chat boards from Reddit to Facebook to elsewhere, and, and people, because it's not public knowledge what happens, and Crispin spins the stories his way, Bob Gale spins the stories his way, and everyone's manipulating each other, and there's a lot of gaslighting going on. Uh, it's it's kind of weird and icky, and in my, my opinion, not very uh, moral. So I figured I'd just stick to the facts I know, and, uh, you know, I'm I'm not rewriting history. Crispin has been doing it. Bob Gale's been redoing it. And I'm like, hmm, you guys, what are you doing? Uh, but it's also the nature of the business. People have a sure. public image or a product that they want to protect. And uh, they don't like being called out on bad moves. And there were bad moves on both sides, in my opinion. That's very and interesting. Caught in the middle of it. Yeah, it seems like from what you're saying that that really is the case that you kind of were just thrown into this and now you're having to deal with it in the moment in what was a very popular franchise at the time. And a lot of people were banking yeah. on it. And Bob Zemeckis, who has made some amazing films, in my opinion, but this one I oh, think yeah. was just so different than, you know, anything that, I mean, at the time when I saw it, you know, and again, Showing it to my son, you know, he's kind of catching bits and pieces of it while he's playing on his Game Boy. So there's that part, you know, the attention span of a toddler. And I'm I'm mainly watching it. But it's and there was a cartoon, too, I think that is how he kind of got originally interested in it was there was some cartoon that was out on, I don't know, one of these streaming channels. And he's like, oh, this is cool. So we kind of started watching the other things. But it's just really unfortunate because I've heard him. Uh, Crispin on other interviews. I think he was on Joe Rogan or some other type of podcast. And it's just, it's really become such a controversial thing, but I really appreciate your honesty and your transparency and, and stating facts about well, what really I, happened. I've, I, I've been, you know, processing the, the whole situation for over 30 years now. And Crispin doesn't want to give up his bitterness. Bob Gale doesn't want to give up his fight and, and uh, protecting his product. Um, and I've been in the mid, middle of this often being uh, used as a pawn. And it really doesn't feel good. And I don't like being victimized. So I'm just speaking out saying that, you know, why don't you guys get over it? Hand a, <laughs> a laurel to, yes. to each other and do something for the fans and Michael's charity. That would be, you know, a lot of people around the world would pay a great deal of money to see them make up and do something special. You know, the uh, cast reunion that was uh, up a couple weeks ago uh, was suspiciously missing a lot of people. And uh, it was great to see Mary Sternberg and Elizabeth Shue, who'd never do any Back to the Future events, be a part of that. And that was very special. But, you know, Tom had to come in after the fact. It's because maybe Tom doesn't want to be seen with some people that were there. It's, you know, there's icky things on both sides, and I would love to see the air just get cleared. But, you know, there's also huge egos and, you know, people really got hurt. And I think uh, 
that that hurt and that anger that still is re- residual uh you know it'd be beautiful to see everyone work it out and and get along because like you say the film keeps holding up generation after generation the films are a treat and a wonderful ride i've uh, seen time and again people from around the world cry and and get giddy with glee when they get to go and see the train where uh, part three was shot up there in Jamestown or, or they come to the we're going back event that was uh, raising money for the Parkinson's foundation and get to meet Leah and myself at the enchantment under the sea dance and watch Harry Waters Jr. as Marvin Berry sing earth angel in, in person. You know, there's, there's so much appreciation of those films that it, it just should be, um, how shall I say it would be great to sidestep the controversy. People get over the the crap and get along and just keep moving forward on helping Michael find a cure, raise money for the cause. That's a very good point. You know, I, it's just, it's unfortunate really because we don't know what's happening behind the scenes other than what we see on television or in press conferences. You know, I've tried getting Tom on the show before and it's a really difficult task because I don't know. I mean, he's very popular, you know, and he does so many other beautiful things uh, as well that I think are just fantastic. And, you know, there's just like this, I don't want to say dark cloud, but really just this kind of ominous thing. And uh, I appreciate the fact that you're talking about it. To be honest, I, I wanted to talk about it. I, I wasn't expecting this. And so this is awesome. I, I'm thrilled that we're, we're in this conversation because it's just been in my head for a while. And I, I think I was even watching something just recently within the last couple of weeks about the franchise and, you know, all of this stuff that happened here and there. And it's just even in the documentary, have you seen the documentary that was on Netflix uh, about Back to the Future and just the fandom that is behind it? Or maybe it's on a different uh, streaming service. Are you familiar with it? Have you seen it at all by chance? Well, there's probably three or four different ones. Uh, If you're talking about the more recent one that's um, DeLorean centric. Yes, um, that's it. That's the one. Yes, yes. Yeah, I'm 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 in that. Okay. Well, I don't I know. Have a, I have a brief brief uh, cut of the interview, the full interviews in the bonus material if you own the DVD. Um, and I helped bring in some people like uh, Mick Smith, who worked on the train going over into uh, Eastwood Ravine and blowing up for three months. Um, you know, I, I helped him put put a few people, Jason and uh, partners, put put some of the folk in into that. Um, but the the uh, documentary that was made of the making of Back to the Future that while we were shooting the uh, the sequels, um, I have some of my footage. I was cut out of that completely. Interesting. And, uh, the sound guy, the sound guy on that production happened to be a dear friend of mine. And he he said, "Hey, Jeffrey, you should have this footage." And there's footage of me getting into makeup. It took four hours a day to get into all the different age seventeen, forty seven, and seventy seven year old makeups for part two and part three. Um, so I had some. Footage of me getting into makeup with uh, uh, Sonny Berman, who just passed away, unfortunately. And also some of the shooting uh, close-ups of me and Leah doing the kiss at the Enchantment Under the Sea Dance. Uh, Some rare footage. Wow. That is just fantastic. You've been in this industry for a very long time and are still actively involved in certain places. How has the industry changed, would you say, from your perspective, the film industry, from when you were in it in the heat of the moment to to now, like some positives or negatives just from your perspective? I started working uh, mainly bit and background playing in the late 70s in films like The Rose and I Want to Hold Your Hand and, and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. FM films like that, and found that you know ultimately it's really not so rewarding being a background player when you when you're an actor and you want to dig 
dig your teeth, bite, bite into a nice roll. So I had to go get training to be taken uh, seriously. When I came back to Hollywood after going to ACT as sort of a hot item, I was screen testing for the lead in war games. You know, when we had a headshot back then, it was a black and white headshot and composite te- for commercial work where you in various looks that could be you playing a role in a commercial. Now, in the next 10 years or so, headshots turned from just a head shot in black and white to a three quarter or full body color shot. And then a number of years after that, with the onset of the Internet, uh, it became digital digital uh, submissions. With the access for actors and agents and managers, uh, it went from, say, 500 submissions for every role that went out there. Now it's up to 2,000 or more submissions for every role that's out there. So the competition is much more fierce. And uh, the the studios go back and forth between um, kind of letting the heads of those studios kind of run amok sometimes with their decisions you know often they don't trust new material that writers are coming up with so they go to proven material and and remake films you know that are probably should have never been remade you know or from a television show you know let's make a movie of my favorite martian or beverly hillbillies or whatever you know and instead of perhaps uh, taking the time to really develop original stories you know although some of the remakes have all are are passable or palatable um so it's it's been a very interesting uh road watching uh, studios then become kind of run by uh, bean counters, you know, accountants and and, uh, lawyers. You know, I I have a dear friend who who's a top uh, executive at one of the studios. And uh, and when I talk to him about Star's contract now, that contract is usually a couple inches thick with uh, directives that, you know, they get final approval of whatever they want, the the cut of the film or the photos that are released. Uh, You know, there's certain things that must be in place so on and so forth and and it's uh it's kind of crazy making but it's also a business and and involves lots of money and that's why you know for me when the whole mishigas of the back future thing being caught in the middle between the producers and crispin's uh likeness um it was very scary because i eventually you know spoke with crispin who used my uh, conversations with him uh to the press and that was probably impetus for them to settle his case before it went to court. He got his three quarters of a million dollars. And then shortly thereafter, I found that I had been blacklisted from some casting. And I was like, what? Uh, (laughs) Oh, dear. And so my life kind of turned upside down. And uh, in fact, uh, I had to redefine uh, my whole personal life was just in a tailspin. Uh, It it was, uh, it's been a very hard road. Uh, I learned, you know, the, the public doesn't listen to that sort of thing. Uh, you know, they think blacklisting was only back in the fifties or, you know, when, uh, the, the Beagleman thing was happening or, you know, it very, very rarely do, do you hear about it happening? And I didn't really want to, I didn't know who I could cry to about it. And, uh, you know, I tried to think that, you know, it would just fade and it just sort of never kind of went away. So I just said, all right, let's, let's say goodbye to Hollywood and moved up to Northern California. Interesting. Wow. I, again, I just, so it's just, uh, I don't know what to say. I, I love hearing these stories because you don't get to hear them all too often. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned about Hollywood and things. Have you seen the Netflix series Hollywood that came out? It was a Ryan Murphy project. Have you had a chance to watch that during this whole pandemic of, of binging on television? No, I kind of, uh, you know, stuck to uh, Picard and Discovery. Okay. Yeah. Great shows. The, the only reason I ask is because it, it kind of deals a little bit 
or a lot with some of the things that you have described. And uh, it's just interesting because when you watch a show like that, you think, well, how much of this is real versus like how much is sensationalized as a television show? But it seems like they probably were telling the truth on a lot of different levels as far as how relationships went with studios and how people were chosen. And if you didn't curtail to certain things, you know, then you would be blacklisted or not looked upon kindly as a performer because you didn't sort of go along with the flow of, of what people wanted, if that makes any sense. And you just right. are yeah, kind of mishandled. There's, def- there's definitely protocols and there's definitely, uh, you know, play by our rules or you're not going to play. You don't come to our game. And it's very frustrating, especially if you're not represented by power agents. Uh, a lot of really powerful agents, in fact, are attorneys in themselves, entertainment attorneys often. Uh, and the situation that came with the, the trilogy, the Back Future trilogy, was really unfortunate. I, I shouldn't have had been had to be put, first of all, in the place of vulnerability and then finding out how uh, Crispin had been done wrong. You know, that hurt. You know, there was, it was just it kind of snowballed into this situation that should have never really happened. It would have been great if, you know, cool heads in the business office and the business side had worked it out for him to come back. But I think he just pushed too many buttons on the producer, the production on the first film. And and I don't think he was necessarily fond of them. So, uh, you know, they they had their hands tied by his refusal to accept their offers and they had to have him for recreating those scenes. And so they were willing to carry on since everyone was ready to go, but they didn't have a, an important piece of the puzzle. I, you know, just reading a posting on the Big Back to the Future Facebook page just today, there are 400 people responding to a picture of me saying, well, I thought that was Chris. You know, it's, uh, you know they, they achieved their uh, need by fooling the public and continuing the trilogy with uh, my work of being able to imitate and also do, you know, a, a little bit of, with the old George stuff in 2015. Uh, and yet there's still people out there who, who don't know that, you know, or, or like, well, okay, if it's another actor, but he, he, he was shitty, you know, it was great. You know, Crispin only came out just recently and said, well, I don't care for the, uh, the guy who, who played the role in the sequels. Uh, I think that, kept me from getting other roles because of my performance, because they thought that it was me. Uh, I'm speaking as Crispin. I'm like, really? Crispin, you keep keep spinning this, keep spinning it. And it's, you know, all right, you guys, chill. Yeah, I think it's ridiculous. Well, in my humble opinion, I think you did a fantastic job. You are a part of a trilogy, a franchise, a universe that will go on forever, in my opinion. And I don't think it will ever, I think young people, whoever's listening to this, will continue to discover it and appreciate at what great filmmaking really is and working it, with it really was, certain budgets. It, it was just that. They, they were terrific, terrific tight scripts with a lot of great team members to help them bring come to life. You know, I asked Zemeckis while we were shooting, uh, are you going to do a sequel to, to Who Framed Roger Rabbit? And I said, nah, I don't think so. And I was like, is it too complicated? And he said, no, you know, working with the animation and live action. He goes, no, I've got much more complicated stuff on this film, which he did. We spent, especially in that 2015 uh, Hill Valley interiors of the McFly home, we had 19, 21, 26 hour long days in there wow. to get things just right all the special effects and we were working all night when uh because we only had michael during the night he was shooting the final season of family ties during the day and uh i was like michael when do you sleep <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> in the limo uh, in between the studios, he said. It was uh, really the, uh, a crack team of special effects artists and prop makers and, you know, the crew, the grips, the electricians, the uh, camera, Dean Cundy and his crew were just magnificent. And working with, you know, it wasn't digital. We had uh, a Tondro design program operating the, the VistaVision camera that would allow the uh the film inside the camera to be split so Michael could step into the three different roles of Marlene, Marty Jr. and, and Marty. Uh, and and that was, you know, relatively new, you know, only really in 80, the early 80s, the, the uh, Steadicam came about. Now here at the end of the 80s, we had this VistaVision thing with the splitting of the film inside. And we had to set our blocking and not stray from that exact precise blocking because once the camera shot it one way, you had to exactly repeat that to match it so uh, it would look seamless. And wow. During production, one night, one night after we had left the set, there was an early morning earthquake, and Zemeckis was freaking out. He thought maybe we'd have to go start from scratch. It was you know, a lot of nightmares. But, um, uh, but a, a, as a tribute to the wonderful brain you know, of, of Zemeckis and, and Gail and, and company for making all this stuff work, they draft after draft of the sequels, they, they kept going through... And Zemeckis was like, nah, this doesn't inspire me if um, George and Lorraine are hippies. And, you know, there were different versions, different time periods. And uh, the first film itself had went through so many different changes. You know, the original time machine was a refrigerator. The original way Marty got back from 55 to 85 was by driving the DeLorean underneath the dropping of an atomic bomb on a test site. Um, and, and that scene, actually, they had to cut when they fired uh, Eric Stoll. Sid Scheinberg said, you got to cut a million dollars off your film. And they cut that scene and I think came up with a clock tower lightning bolt. Wow, that's um, interesting. Well, I think the way that they decided to do it now that we know it was best, that would be weird under an atomic bomb. <laughs> I can't imagine uh, that. Yeah. That would yeah, be weird. A tribute to that in the, in the Indiana Jones, uh, last Indiana Jones film I saw. That yeah. They kind of did a tribute. You know, Kathleen Kennedy, Frank Marshall, same producer. I think they probably inserted that where Indy gets inside the uh, the refrigerator on the test site to survive that. Yeah, yeah, I'd heard that before. And in regards to Roger Rabbit, I'm glad they only made one of those. I've heard them talking about doing another one, but... I just feel it would be weird, you know, to to do one of those. I mean, the first one was cool, uh, but uh, I don't know how a second one would land. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, we, don't, we don't have the wonderful Bob Hoskins anymore. Either. No, no. I would be weird. It's like, I don't know why they would. You know, that would be so bizarre. It would be like them rebooting Back to the Future. I've heard rumblings and rumors about them doing that, but... I don't think that they would ever do that because, I mean, you how could you, right? I mean, that would just be weird. Or maybe, don't you think so? That would be so odd for them to try and redo that film? Well, fans have written in complete scripts for Back to the Future 4. Yeah, and I've seen that or heard about that. For over the last 30 years, I've read a few of them. And uh, there's... A lot of good ideas and and uh, a lot of outcall, you know, outcrying, you know, oh, when Harry Potter was uh, coming to a close, you know, Radcliffe said, I'll play Marty, uh, you know, and now you've got uh, Tom Holland and, you know, other actors who would probably jump at the role. And Gail and Zemeckis both have said over our dead bodies, you're not going to. But ultimately, and I had this kind of out with uh Tim Russ from uh, Star Trek fame. Uh, Tim was adamant. He says, well, the studio owns the product. If the studio decides there's enough money in it, they'll do it. So it's like, who knows? 
yeah. more than likely they want they want the uh, original collaborators to be a part of that, especially for you know the possibilities of of the that in, uh, you know wonderful genius in their storytelling. I I suspect that if they did anything, it would be a revisit to to the stories, but using maybe Jules and Vern with cameos by other characters, you know, uh, Marty or or Biff or Lorraine or what have you. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? So looking back on your career and everything that you've done, and you've been a part of so many great films, do you ever have any moments or any regrets of things that you wished you would have done or that you would have passed on in that regards? I like to ask all my celebrities and actors that I have on. And and if you do, that's great. And if you don't, that's great too. But I always like to hear if there's a moment where you go, man, I wished I would have done that or or I didn't do that. Has anything ever happened like that with you by chance? Uh yeah, well, I I remember you mentioning, you know, why or how did you choose the roles you took? And for me, as a, a, a kind of a struggling actor, often, I didn't really have much choice. If I auditioned for something and was offered it, I usually would take it. I remember, though, when I was cast in Pale Rider, uh, I finally read the, the whole script and I was like, oh, oh, no, my mom's not going to like all this violence. And I was almost, I was on the edge of backing out. And I was like, wait a minute, Jeffrey, listen to this. You're about to back out on co-starring with Clint Eastwood in a Western? What are you thinking? But I was raised, my mom would say, you know, violence in film and television, that's not entertainment. To her, you know, it's musical comedy or musicals or what have you. And I, uh, then I, I, you know, kind of came to terms and to my senses and said, there's no way I can turn down this film. I need to do it. And it was a really lovely film to be a part of. I've been up on, like I mentioned, films like War Games I screen tested for. And I think I let myself get a little thrown. Uh, Ali Sheedy during our test kept looking through me, I felt. I was like, why isn't she why am I not meeting her eyes? Why are we not connecting? And she was, I think, connecting with Eric Stoltz, who was actually on the soundstage watching our test being shot. And later, many years later, when I ran into Eric, I asked him, you know, what was going on between you and Ali there in 82 when we were screen testing? And he goes, oh, we were living together. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, they were a romantic uh, couple. I, I regret not knowing that when I auditioned for Bogdanovich on a uh, mask, that it was actually a story about a gal who lived in a building that I managed. Uh, Rusty was one of my tenants in a building I managed here in San Francisco. And uh, she'd show me pictures of Rocky, the deformed son of hers, but I didn't have all the information on that audition to know that's what, who I was playing. I regret that. That was kind of out of my, my hands. I, I think I would have given Eric a run for his money on that audition. Um, a year after the war games, I was uh, on my way actually to Warner Brothers to screen test for Lady Hawk. Um, when Matthew Broderick came down in his fee, uh, and uh, they canceled my test because they they wanted obviously Matthew, but uh, I had um, been asked to audition after I went to an open call again, and then went and did about 19 scenes that the mouse was in, in the head of castings office there at, at Warner brothers. And uh, I just fell in love with it because I had done Renaissance fairs and love Shakespeare. And I knew that medieval stuff was going to be a breeze for me and, and was really going to rock that role. So I would, I would regret, of course, not getting that revenge of the nerds, my science project, a lot of things that I went up on. Um, I, I was told many times that, you know, you know, they loved you, but didn't hear anything back. And I, 
I'm sure there's a thousand reasons why they cast who they cast, you know, but I've been, you know, still, I, I count my blessings. I'm in working pretty, pretty often between television and, and film, you know, uh, some have been wonderful blessings getting to work with Dick Van Dyke on diagnosis murder. I was able to talk in between shots with him all day about Buster Keaton and, and Stan Laurel, who he was dear friends with. And um, I'd played in between television and film roles. I started playing Stan Laurel at Universal Studios in Hollywood. So if you went to Universal and had a photo with Laurel and Hardy or Charlie Chaplin or Groucho Marx between 87 and 2001, it's more than likely I was playing that role. Really? I was there in 93. So who knows? That probably was you. Wow, that is so cool. Now I'm going to have to go through my old photos, my friend, and take a look and see if I can find it. And if so, I'll, I'll forward it to you because I would be curious to yeah. know if that was you. Oh, man. A Hollywood. Yeah. Hollywood is a strange and mysterious thing, my friend. I tell you, uh, as many people as I've had the privilege of talking to like yourself, it's just it's so different than any other world that anybody could be a part of. And that is part of the reason why I podcast and talk to great people is because I get an insight to things that I would never get a chance to otherwise. And the stories, all of that you've shared has just been a true delight, my friend. And and I really appreciate your time. Uh, it's just been a joy for me. And now I'm going to go back and watch the movies again and, and relive some, uh, some fond memories. It's just been great. Yeah. See if you can find me in Twilight Zone movie on the airplane with John Lithgow and the remake of Nightmare at 20,000 feet and uh, my little bits on in various other films like Johnny Dangerously or, you know, the Screech's Guru on Saved by the Bell, the high geek. You can find me here and there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, your your credit list is quite long. Now, if people want to connect with you and watch your readings that you do of Back to the Future or follow any of that sort of thing, uh, Free, how can they do yeah, that? On, on Twitter, the handle is at Jeff, J-E-F-1-F, Weissman, W-E-I-S-S-M-A-N. On Instagram, it's at Jeffrey J. Weissman. Uh, I have a a website that desperately needs to be updated, but no one uses Dreamweaver anymore, uh, jeffreyweisman.com. Uh, you can also find my Facebook page is Jeffrey Weisman Actor is my fan page. My personal page, of course, got over 5,000 limit of friends that Facebook in instituted uh, probably nine, ten years ago. And, uh, and then uh, if you want to see, I do a cameo uh, when the pandemic started. A producer put together a project called Project 88, where he took Back to the Future Part 2, and he divided it into 88 scenes. And he assigned filmmakers and fans around the world a scene, and you had one week to remake a scene from Back to the Future Part 2, and it's called Project 88 on YouTube. And then there's also a website, BTTF. T-O-O.com. And that's just wonderful to see the creativeness. There are th over 300 fans from nine different countries remade Back to the Future Part 2. It's really a lot of fun. Wow. And then, as I mentioned, uh, we just broadcast yesterday uh, the uh, Get the Back to the Future um, that was put together by a wonderful company in England uh, called uh, Get, it, Get It Online. Uh, Quirk Books, if you go to Quirk Books website, who produce uh, Ian's book, Get the Back to the Future, as if Shakespeare had written Back to the Future, that uh, you'll see links there. Uh, and also on, on my uh, social networks, I, I have links up as well. Wonderful. Well, Jeffrey, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure for me, and uh, I'll see you in the future. That brings today's episode to an end. Thanks for choosing to stop by and listen. 
If you enjoyed the show, consider sharing it with a friend and hitting the subscribe button. It's absolutely free. The views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect those of the host. Is it all over, Rock? I guess so. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.